Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 36 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode for us, like everybody else in the world of golf, the stuff that matters is the year's first major. Yes, the US Masters is just around the corner, and as it does every year, the expectation of what will unfold at Augusta National has already overtaken the golf world, even though it's still two weeks away. One of the reasons this happens, of course, is that the Masters so often delivers such remarkable drama, especially on Sunday. And the subject of today's episode is one of the most memorable, the 1975 tournament won by Jack Nicklaus. We'll be joined shortly by Gil Capps, who's written a book about that year's tournament called The Magnificent Masters, Jack Nicklaus, Johnny Miller, Tom Weisskopf, and the 1975 cliffhanger at Augusta. But before we meet Gil, let me bring in my co-hosts, as always, from the US, blogger, author, critic, architect, Golf Channel regular, Jeff Shackelford-Shack. Looking forward to chatting with Gil about one of golf's great tournaments and finishes, the 1975 US Masters. Yeah, I was only four years old, so I've enjoyed Gil's book. Uh, It's beautifully written, and uh, of course, Gil's an interesting guy, too, because uh, uh, he's very active uh, working in television for NBC, and I'm sure has great stories that he won't tell us about sitting between (laughs) Johnny Miller and Dan Hicks. (laughs) Yes, we're going to touch on some of that, not just the book, but you're right, he'll have some fantastic stuff to tell us about all sorts of things to do with golf here in Australia, though shortly to depart for the US himself, where he'll be continuing his caddy career at the year's actual first major. Uh, Mike Clayton, touring pro, commentator, one quarter of the Ogilvy Clayton design team. Clayton's off to uh, off to California to caddy for Sue O at the Craft Nabisco next week. That should be a great experience for you. That will be good fun. She's playing well. She beat Minji Lee last week at Lake Karen. I've shot 22 under par, so... She's a good player, but the course is set up a little easier for them at the moment. You'll be getting called back, won't you? You'll be getting called back to fix it, won't you? If the amateurs are shooting 22 under their clates, you'll... (laughs) Well, they could could go back on the men's tees, given she hits it as far as I do, which is not that far, but 250 yards off the tee, it becomes a short course at 5,000... 600 metres yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. Nice rap for you, though, Clates, for her to ask you to, to go to the craft. Now, that's a big deal for a, a kid. Sue's one of our up-and-coming players, of course, one of the best in Australia, which makes her one of the best in the world. That's a nice rap for you that you, you caddied for at the Vic Open, obviously, and she did well there, So and at uh, the Australian Open, too, I think. Did you not? Yeah, yeah. So it's good fun. She's a nice kid, and yeah. she plays well. And oh, great. And, so uh, we'll see if I can not mess it up. She'll learn a few new words and no doubt some very interesting and worthwhile stories about golf on that trip. <laughs> She'll learn about the 1975 Masters. (laughs) She'll have a whole plane ride to get intimate with that story, which will be... I'm going to bring the book on the plane and give it to her, and she can learn about... She now knows who Sevi Ballesteros is, which is a good start. (laughs) Yeah, you've done this for a few of the kids down there, haven't you? Taught them a bit about the history of the game, which is nice. As mentioned in the opening, also joining us this week is Gil Capps. He's the author of The Magnificent Masters. He joins us from San Antonio, though, today, where he's working the Texas Open as part of his day job. Gil's the head of the Golf Channel Editorial Research Unit and can also often be found sitting in the 18th Tower commentary booth supplying the likes of Johnny Miller and Dan Hicks with all those wonderful tidbits of information they seem to pull about the players we're watching each week. Gil, great to have you aboard. Really looking forward to chatting not just about the 1975 Masters but all things golf with you today. Welcome to uh, State of the Game. Hey, Rod, Mike and Jeff, it is a pleasure to be with you guys. I listen to you guys on a... uh 
on a regular basis there through Jeff's, uh, Jeff's website. This is going to be a treat to uh, chat with you guys for a little bit. It's going to be a, uh, a treat for us, Gil. We were just talking before we started recording, Gil, and I sort of made the point, and I wanted to get your thoughts about this. Of course, the publishing world, all things written, their own word of world of journalism, magazines and newspapers. We've seen lots of attrition as the internet's taken things over. Book publishing, you were saying you, you felt lucky to have a publisher. This book, like, uh, similar to the genre of a couple of others, probably for people who've read them, The Greatest Game Ever Played and the, the Jack Fleck book about the US Open of 1955. This one's in a similar vein, isn't it? This taking apart a tournament with the players and all the things that surround the event. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? You don't need to be a golf fan necessarily to appreciate because the characters are powerful and the events are powerful. I've had a couple of you mentioned that, that you don't necessarily have to know a lot about golf to enjoy, uh, enjoy this book, which is, uh, is a very nice comment to, uh, to receive after you've told for quite a while uh, putting this together. Uh, but the 1975 Masters was, uh, was indeed, I, I'm fortunate, I guess, the, the standpoint that nobody ever tackled this subject in book form. I'm not exactly sure, uh, uh, sure why, but, but um, everybody remembers, uh, you know, it was the year that, that Lee Elder became the first flight golfer to play in the Masters, and it was the, uh, the year Jack Nicklaus, uh, you know, holds this great 40-foot putt on, on the 70th hole and beats his, uh, his rivals, Nicholas and Miller, by... Uh, by a single shot, but uh, but but once I kind of got into it and started the research and talking more and more to people about it, you know, I realized there were there were lots of different layers to to, to the story there and what happened that week. So it, it gave me a lot of rich material to uh, uh, to write this book. Mm. It kind of it, it points to what makes these books working. We remember 40 years down the track, a couple of – the Jack Nicholas putt is famous. You can still find it on YouTube. The Lee Elder being the first black man to play the Masters, obviously a really significant moment in the tournament. But it forgets so much, doesn't it, when we look back, and that's all we can recall, those sort of highlight moments. There's so much more to the stories. You, you know, in this day and age, of, I mean, of 24-7 news and – you know, even my employer, the Goth Channel, we're covering, covering things. You know, it's a news cycle all the time, and and we tend to be, um, um, you know, there, there tends to be a lot of, uh, you know, what happened yesterday is the greatest, or can you believe this or that? And you know, it's hardly, first of all, that the 1975 Masters that was, that was the 39th Masters, 39 years ago. So that's actually, you know, the, the halfway point, uh, you know, of the Masters as, as we sit today, which is. Which is hard to believe, but I but I think one of the things that we can talk about that uh, you know the people forget about that Masters it, you know, what made it so special that that afternoon is the fact that the Nicholas and Miller and Weisskopf going into that Masters they all three were the main storylines you know they were the three uh, hottest golfers they were the three Vegas favorites they were in a sense the three best golfers uh, you know obviously. You had guys like Lee Trevino and Gary Player who, uh, let's give them their due, but the fact is, you know, Weisskopf and Miller had more talent than those guys and were probably more of a physical threat to, to, to Jack, and especially at Augusta National. And for those three guys to still be there, you know, at the very end on a Sunday afternoon, uh, more or less each playing as good a golf as they ever have in their lives on that, on that weekend, and for it to come down to those last few holes and indeed the, the very last green, um, it was a pretty big deal and something people people forget. It, it, it didn't it hadn't happened before in the modern era, and it hasn't happened since. I mean, I ache in it to the fact where, if, imagine if, if back in the early 2000s, a couple of those Masters, if we had had, 
you know, Tiger and Phil and maybe an Ernie or a VJ doing the same thing and bowing out at the end, and Tiger makes this great putt to cement his legacy and, and dent the psyche of his two rivals. You know, we'd still be talking about that as the greatest golf tournament ever, bar none, but that kind of has already happened and happened in, in 1975. Yeah. It's almost a case, what you're saying there, Gil, if you took Schwartzel, Day, and Scott from 2011 and made them Mickelson, Ells, and Woods... <laughs> you combine those two, those characters, mm-hmm. with what unfolded on that back nine in 2011, as you say, you'd have the, the greatest ever, wouldn't you? That is right. And not the, hey, all those guys are great golfers, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think at some point here pretty soon, Jason Day is going to uh, going to get his major uh, major championship if he can if he can stay healthy. But um, you, you know, look, I mean, we we remember the great majors, I, more or less, that were won by the great champions. And uh, you know, what do, do we still think? You know, the same of the 2008 U.S. Open of Rocco. What it want? Nothing against Rocco Mediate, but same thing with the 2000 PGA. If Bob May would have won instead of Tiger, would we still think about that tournament in the same light that, that we do now? Um, you know, and that's why, you know, I think we look back on an event like 75, the fact that Jack, you know, won that event and won it by one and over his two biggest rivals, uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why it, uh, it evokes such uh, such memories in so many people of a certain ilk. I, I can't believe to, 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 that I'm actually older than Jeff, you know, but by one year. <laughs> I was yeah. five at that point. But, but, but he talked to enough people that 75 still comes up, you know, guys of a certain age, you know, in their top, you know, one, two, or three majors of all time, um, you know, remembering that, that day and that battle. We can talk a little bit later. It, it's not just that. I think they remember what they saw on television and how they felt and how, you know, that event was, was shown and played out, you know, under the uh, uh, the direction of, of the legendary CBS producer-director, Frank Turkinian, as well. Hey, hey uh, on that topic of Turkinian, if I, if I may, uh, you have a great story in the book about he how he wanted the putt on 16. He wanted Jack to recreate it. Uh, and and Jack just never sniffed the cup. Uh, the the pin was on that back upper area, correct? As I recall, it was back, videos. back upper area, right at the uh, um, just over the precipice of that of that ridge. It actually kind of almost like they're almost kind of like two ridges there, but but one's really really subtle. So um, in, in which uh, at this day and age, the green's not you know quite the same as it as it used to be. But you know, Jeff, it I mean. When you watch when you watch the putt back on on film and you watch you know track up the hill and then you watch after that a guy like Weisskopf who who was who was who was further away and on a different line but you see how his putt goes and see how it it tails off and you really see the effect of that of that ridge you know it does make you wonder how how in the world he you know he made that putt I mean everybody I talked to says at that time. Uh, at Augusta National, that 16 was the green that confounded the players the most in trying mm-hmm. to figure out, uh, you know, trying to figure out where to, uh, you know, where to put the ball, and especially with that, where that pin was and that whole location was on that Sunday. Did, did they film that 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 attempt to recreate that? Uh, I'm sorry, say it again, Jeff. Did Did Cherkinian record that, or did they try to film that when? Uh... When Jack you know, went there, supposedly it was filmed a few years later. They were going to do a piece on, on Jack and the putt and wanted him to recreate it. And 
And you know, this is a this is a, a wise golf story backed up by a, a couple other people that that Jack uh, could never make that putt. And I'm not sure if it actually ever saw the light of day on a on a Masters broadcast there a couple yeah, years. Here's it sounds very on Augusta like. Yeah, you you don't embarrass Jack, do you, during the Masters telecast? There's no, 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 no you don't, no. no, you don't. But uh, yeah, but it's funny we we mentioned Frank and mentioned uh, um, you know CBS. I mean, I you know the, the there there are a lot of things that came out of people remember, but you know still that people you know almost forty years later remember that exchange between you know Longhurst and Ben right there you know, at 15 and 16, you know, even to this day, and it's probably the, you know, the, the most famous uh, exchange in, in golf broadcast history where, uh, you know, where, where Weisskopf makes the putt, I'm going to paraphrase all this, but when Weisskopf makes the putt on, on 15 and, and um, you know, and, and that's evil music to, uh, to Nicholas's ears when he makes the birdie and, uh, and then Longer's famous call and on 16 when it, when it goes up the hill and Longer's and is kind of, gravelly voice, you know, says, my, my, what a, you know, I've never seen a putt like that in all my life. One of the greatest putts in, yeah. I've ever seen. And now Wise Golf, you know, must uh, take it as he just dished out on the hole before. It was, uh, it, it was, it, it was caption writing, you know, a picture to its finest. And, and of then, of course, Weisskopf's yeah. part of the, the other great call on 16. 11 years later, Shaq. Yeah, exactly. One of the greatest lines ever. What did he say? If I, if I knew what Jack was thinking, I'd have won this damn tournament. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Or, or if he, you know, I, I think, you know, or as Weisskopf, you know, later told me, you know, I, I probably kind of knew what Jack was thinking. The problem is that I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't bring myself to follow up with a, uh, with a plan. Tom says, you know, I could... You know, I could make a game plan. I could, I could make course management. I could, I could do all that stuff. I could have a game plan. The problem is, once you know, I started the plan, following through with it. You know, I couldn't. <laughs> most of the time, I couldn't do that. And so, uh, uh, he was exactly right, though. If, if, if Tom and and Johnny, I think too, if they would have thought like Jack and been able to to have. Uh, uh, you know, to have mentally been able to do some of the things Jack did. More excitable um, characters, aren't I, I they both? I think they'd have a few green jackets as well. Yeah. More excitable characters, Gil, aren't they both? And totally different personalities to Jack, who always seems to kind of flatline, whereas Miller and Weisskopf, much more much more up and down with those two. You, you know, that was the other thing I, I, I discovered that was interesting to me, because, you you know, and you hear Tom Weiss, everybody has their opinions of Tom and Johnny and, and Jack, but... But but one of the things that that struck me when you talk to them and find out about what they they kind of think about the game and golf and how they they played it was that you know Jack Jack's main goal is to win and and Jack's competitiveness he would do any whatever it took to win he would do and that more or less at that day and age with the way the game was played and in the courses and clubs and balls et cetera meant he played you know percentage golf um, he played. Um, you know, like like he thought he needed to to, to win and had an idea of a, of a score in mind. He had an idea of what, probably what other players would do, and he knew uh, other players tended to sometimes melt coming down the stretch or make bad decisions. And he was more or less gonna gonna try to always be there in the end to uh, you know to to pick up pick up the pieces and carry home the the trophy. You know, Tom and Johnny they they wanted to win. Uh, you know, I'm not clear they didn't want to win, but. The fact is, I think they played golf instead for the sake of, well, kind of for the sake of the game, for the spirit of the game, to 
to get as much out of the game as they could and, and play golf like they thought it should be played and, and the style they thought it should be played. You know, talking to both of them, you know, Johnny has a quote where he says, you know, I'd, I'd rather play, you know, I'm a hot and cold golfer, but I'd rather play hot some of the time than lukewarm all the time. And, and Tom was kind of the same. Tom was, I think, would take more satisfaction in having an unbelievable ball striking round, um, you know, and feeling like he he played the game like it should have been, that that almost meant more to him than, say, winning a tournament and, and kind of scrapping it around and playing and playing lousy. You know, nothing nothing seemed to get, you know, and you still hear Johnny kind of make these comments kind of offhanded in the tower about, you know, sometimes a little bit snarky, but it's nothing nothing meant bad to, to a player. But the fact is that, that there's a respect, I think, on both Tom's end and Johnny's end for guys who, who you know, have, have a great long game and a great iron game and play the game great, tee to green. You know, even to this day, Tom, you know, if you mention George Archer to him, who, who beat Tom in that uh, in that Masters in, in 1969, which Tom really looks back on and thinks that that may have been the Masters he really should have won. But you mentioned that back to Tom, and you can just see Tom just, you know, his, his eyes kind of get big and his cheeks get red. Here's a guy, you know, just slapped it around. You know, was one of the worst ball strikers on tour, but would could hold it from anywhere at any time on the greens. And that's just that the guys like Tom and Johnny. That's you know, that's not golf. Golf is the other part. <laughs> the other, the other part from, yeah. from tee to green. So, yeah. uh, so, so it's funny that 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 those those guys. I think uh, you know thought a little differently, and that's maybe where uh, you know where, where Tom and Johnny had a little more of uh, of thinking about what does it take to win here. Um, you know, and winning was was maybe first and foremost. Maybe maybe their careers would have been a, a little different. Mm. Clay, your thoughts on 1975? Well, I, it was, I think it was the second Masters they televised in Australia. I, I remember the 74 Clay hitting that shot. But, I mean, it was they were kind of heroes of every kid of that generation, really. They were, everyone was trying to copy Weisskopf's swing and Miller was awesome. And But just going back to what you're talking about, Gil, I love that, and I've never heard it before, the story about, the Rembrandt reference to Weisskopf where he was talking, well, um, you can tell a story about how he got that name. Uh, yeah, that, that story comes from Roger Maltby, uh, uh relates to that story that they were sitting in a bar one night, and uh, this had been early 80s, and Weisskopf was uh, was a little frustrated and had a, had a drink or two, and, and Weisskopf says to something to the extent, you know, that, you know, I'm out there trying to create a, a beautiful masterpiece, and all these other guys are just, you know, like scribbling, you know, pencil on a, on a paper. And uh, and from that, uh, for a little while, he carried the nickname Rembrandt. So, uh, but that gives you an idea of what Tom, you know, Tom thought. And and as Roger also pointed out, you know, if if you didn't do things the proper way, if you didn't carry yourself the proper way, or dress the proper way, or hit the ball the proper way, like Tom thought. You know the game was meant to be played. You know that he didn't didn't have didn't quite as much maybe respect for you as uh, uh, as maybe you should have if you didn't play the game the game that way. Clayton, I'm interested from afar. You said that was the second one that was broadcast, and you're obviously into your golf. What was the what, what was the take on Wisecop for Miller and Nicholas? All very different characters. Who was the who, well, who was was your? I imagine you would have had a favorite as a as a youngster up and coming. What was the what was the feel about these guys? And it was really the start of kind of. Um, 
international golf in Australia, wasn't it? In as much as, as you say, we, we'd seen the Open on TV a little bit, but the Masters was probably the first other international thing that we got the, the whole sort of tournament coverage of. It was. Well, you know, as Miller says in the book, it was really the golden era of golf. And I wonder if it, I mean, it seems that way to me, but I wonder if it was just because I was a kid and these guys were heroes and every kid who grows up, I mean, there are probably 15-year-old kids now who, thinks that, who think this is a golden era of golf right now. But, I mean, Weisskopf had played in Melbourne in 1972 at Yarra Yarra. I mean, he hit a driver and eight iron under the 16th at Yarra Yarra, which is a 500-yard par five. And a friend of mine caddied for him that week, and it was like, wow, this guy, I mean, I saw him play. It was incredible. I mean, I, mean, I didn't see Nicholas play in Melbourne. He, was, he mostly played in Sydney. So I didn't see him much, but Weisskopf had come to Melbourne. And, of course, Miller was just doing those crazy scores. And I suppose it was a commentary on the time when we didn't know much about golf courses and everything American was great. But you know, we would play quite difficult courses in Australia, windy and hard greens. And 70, you know, 69 was a great score. And you'd open up the paper on Monday morning or Tuesday morning here and Johnny Miller was shooting 61 every other week. It was like, you know, these guys were just incredible. Mm. But... You read the book and you remember what Miller was like over that three or four year period when he was just extraordinary. The things he was doing with his irons, an amazing player, really. You know, that's the other thing I think that people, you know, which I was interested in that year in writing the book was you hear people all the time say out here on the, uh, you know, amongst uh, golf media and other players, you know, how influential that year was. And guys like, you know, Frank Novello telling me, you know, that, that was the first costume I ever watched. And when I watched that, I was hooked. You know, the same with, and, and I think internationally you make, you make a good point. That, that was about the time that, that the Masters was, uh, you know, was really being shown and started to be shown via satellite in places like Australia. And it had already been on the BBC for a few years and, and South Africa and, and other places. And, uh, and I think that that, that internationally it, it really did uh, did catch the uh, the fancy, so to speak, of a lot of a lot of young boys at that time. Was Nick Faldo one of those? And I read Nick Faldo talking about that was the first golf he ever watched, and that's what made him wanted to become a golfer. I seem to recall. Yeah, it was. I, I think Nick's was seventy two one, I uh, believe. Yeah, you're right. Seventy one, seventy two. But he talks in the book too about you know about how influential watching Johnny and. And Tom and, and Nick were and, and Jack were and uh, you know and a lot of guys. I, I think we uh, you know we're all um, just as today. I think people you know kids growing up you know will will hear many years down the line how you know that's you know Ernie also was a hero in his swing or, or Tiger Woods, but, but we tend to forget at that time. I mean, a lot of kids copied you know Johnny Miller and a lot of kids copied uh, Tom Weisskopf and young players, and they really had a. A great influence on how uh, on how how youngsters played the game. Gil, just on a bit of a side note, you of course work pretty closely with Johnny Miller, and as you would know, he's got more than one critic in the world for his what can be quite blunt uh, commentary. He didn't make many friends in Australia down here when he referred to Craig Parry's swing as something that would make Hogan puke. But what's your take on Johnny Miller? Do we forget? And as Clates pointed out just how good he was a bit like that tiger woods 2000 thing where you know it was oh johnny miller says this that and the other and no one's ever been as good as johnny miller according to johnny miller but there's actually some truth in that perhaps he's walked that walk hasn't he as clates has pointed out there he's earned his stripes to say what he wants he's, he did some amazing things on the course you, you, you know he had and he got some flag a couple of weeks ago with patrick Reed winning and and johnny uh 
I think, on our last on camera talking about, you know what, he he needs to be careful here and he needs to, uh, you know, some of the players in the locker room won't like this and Johnny took a little heat, but I mean, Johnny is talking from experience. Mm. You know, this is the guy who's walked the walk and talked the talk and he's done that. You know, he, uh, it, it's amazing reading back. You do forget if you, if you're going back and doing the research and reading, reading papers and magazines in 73, 74, 75, 76, I mean, you know, Johnny's star was just as bright as Jack Nicholas. Mm. You know, going at 75 Masters, but the big deal was this is going to decide, you know, who, who's, who's the best golfer. Is it Jack Nicholas or is it Johnny Miller? I mean, Johnny was was right there, and his face was everywhere, and he had all these endorsements. And Johnny, you know, Johnny hasn't changed a lot over over the years. I don't believe Johnny, even at that time, you know, Johnny would would say what's on his mind. Johnny said, you know, hey, you know, somebody asked me, you know, if I, you know, you know, playing in Tucson next week, how are you going to do? And Johnny, one of those years down there, seventy four, seventy five, said, I'm going to win. I'm gonna, I'll win at Tucson. And, you know, <laughs> sure enough, he goes down and does it. But, you know, imagine somebody doing that doing that today. Well, Patrick you know, Reed saying, did you know, that, didn't he? I mean, I mean, they would get ripped. So Johnny, yeah. from Patrick Reed's comment about being top five in the world, Johnny, Johnny has said that before and done that and felt the repercussions before. So he was mm. very much speaking from experience. But also, it's, it's kind of funny how, you know, back then, too, players spoke their mind a little more in the media. Mm. I was surprised at some of the quotes you'd see in some of the papers uh, back and forth, even, even even Jack, you know, Jack didn't back down, and Jack would, would say a few things, and Johnny would say some stuff, and Tom, and other players would, would chirp in a little bit. It was, uh, what sorts it was of things much more entertaining reading, reading, reading articles back then than, than it is now from, from a quote standpoint, I guarantee what, you. What sort of things, Gil, when you say that? You got any specific things in mind that you, when you say that? What sorts of things were you surprised uh, to read? You know, I, I think I was just surprised how forthright they are, you know, and how, um, you know, and, and how Johnny and, and, and Tom would really, you know, I, I think in some instances kind of take each other to the task. You know, one of the, you know, one of the ones, you know, obviously Tom's in a bit more of an emotional state after he, he, he loses that Masters, but Tom, you know, kind of lashes out a little bit at Johnny at, at that press conference afterwards, you know, and saying, you know, I hear all this stuff about Johnny Meller and, you know, and Johnny's not nearly as long as I am, and and I've shown today. You know, I can play golf just as good as as Johnny Miller, and it's you know, it, it's I guess maybe a little more maybe a little more forthrightness mm-hmm. is coming from those players at that time than we hear now. And and I take it back. I, I guess you know, this week we just heard some comments from Graham McDowell talking about Tiger Woods, and you know, I I didn't find anything wrong with. Graham said it all. I thought he was, you know, he's saying what everybody else is thinking. There's, there's nothing out of line to me. And then for Graham to kind of go back and, and try to backtrack on it, I, I couldn't understand that whatsoever. And that, you know, that that, 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 that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened back in the 1970s. I think Graham would have just been, you know, if somebody would have been in Graham's shoes, that would have been the quote, and, and that would have been it. But it seems to be now to be a, a sensitivity and even a sensitivity to to, to Tiger. Which you know at this time in his career and, and stage after everything's happened, you know continues to I continue to scratch my head over it. Of course, the irony of that mm. deal is that shoe on the other foot, Tiger would be putting the boot in. 
rather than backing down yeah, from that, Cotter. That, yeah, that's, that, that's absolutely the case. You only got to look at what he did to Sergio last year. Uh, to say, what was the relationship like between the three of them? You said, you know, Tom Weisskopf had some things to say about Johnny. Did they get on? Was there tension among the three? Could you get much of a sense of that from the time? You wouldn't imagine that three guys in that situation, I mean, egos that size and trying to achieve, they're not going to be close pals, you wouldn't think. You know, the, the, both John and, and Tom had a lot of respect for, for Jack. I mean, um, you know, John, Johnny first met Jack when he was uh, when he was 19 in, in San Francisco when, when Johnny qualified for the U.S. Open there. Um, Tom first, first met him uh, early on, even though they were, uh, they were at Ohio State there for, for, for one year. They, they didn't play on the team together since Tom was was a freshman a freshman didn't play play varsity um but but they each uh, had had a long relationship with jack um knew him very well you know johnny i um you know J- johnny says he wasn't afraid afraid of jack and wasn't afraid to to beat jack but but i but i do think somewhere back maybe in johnny's mind johnny you know johnny knew who jack nichols was um you know tom was the same tom um you know was the first Next Nicholas, you know when he comes out on tour, he is the guy that 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 the guys like uh, you know Kay Kessler back in Columbus have been labeling him as such, and this is the guy that's going to come on tour and and he's going to going to be be the guy, and you know that was a lot for Tom to bear and for Tom to hear uh, throughout his career, and I think if uh, you know people think maybe if he was born somewhere other than, than Ohio and went somewhere other than Ohio State and lived somewhere other than Columbus, which he did for uh, uh, for nearly his entire career until he moved to Arizona in the late 70s, um, then maybe he wouldn't have felt, felt such a burden. And, and Tom, you know, Tom's relationship was was a little bit contradictory, too, because at the same time, while, while Tom, I think, adored Jack and loved being around him, and they did a lot together, and, and I think both had respect for each other, you know, there was a frustration there when Tom heard all this stuff all the time. And Tom could never quite, you know, get the better of Jack, you know, especially in these in these major championships. Um, Tom and Johnny, however, I, I weren't the best of friends at the time. Um, you know, Johnny claims that Tom didn't like him because Tom uh, because Johnny was challenging Jack so much, and, and a lot of people thought that Johnny had become the better the better player there by by the middle of 1975. So um, there wasn't. Wasn't a lot of lovely dovey. There wasn't a lot of, uh, of talk in that final twosome there on on Sunday afternoon. I think it's a little different now. Now they're older. I think they they both respect each other and and, uh, and there's a mutual admiration uh, between them. But but there weren't weren't exactly buddy buddy back in '75. Mm. You, you you kind of can't be, can you, Clates? If you're at that level trying to compete with you, can you be best mates and do that? The Tiger uh, Rory no, thing. You, yeah, you can. Well, I guess history says you probably can't. That's true, but. I mean, there are big egos and, you know, they're incredibly talented. And yeah. That's not a criticism, is it? You need a big ego to perform on that sort of stage, don't you, Clates? I mean, it's a prerequisite, isn't it? It's, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, golf's littered with great players not not liking each other particularly. Hmm. And, you know, Lyle and Faldo and Craig and a bunch of guys, you know, Nicholas and Palmer and Jones and Chick Evans and, you know, it goes back a long way. Hmm. So, but, but, Clates, what do you attribute what, what um, Gil just brought up where we with something like McDowell recently, where you know where what he said is accurate and true, and and we know that there are still these ego clashes out there, but where everybody is so um, 
so sensitive to not hurting another player's feelings that way publicly. What what do you think is is it social media is something changed with the modern player that they just aren't quite as um, tough, competitive, or tough? I don't know what it is. It just seems it is. But it, Gail brought up an interesting point. I think it is fascinating how guys like McDowell backtrack. Yeah, maybe they can't be bothered dealing with a the controversy. They say something, yeah. you, know, you know, it just blows up and all of a sudden it's a big story. And it's, I, mean, I thought that a, a bit relevant to the book, the, the interesting thing that Medale said, it's this throwaway line that drives me crazy, is that, well, the players are so much better now. Oh. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, better than these guys, better than Weisskopf, Nicholas Miller, player, Floyd, Trevino, Watson. I mean, yeah, it's it was an incredible era of great players who, you know, I mean, sure, there was, you know, some of them choked occasionally, but Hale Irwin and Kite and Payton, well, it was an incredible era of great play. You know, this throwaway line, why well, the players are so much better now, I mean. It's funny, I mean, isn't it, Clay? the longevity those people yeah. had. I mean, look at the revolving door now, how we, these people kind of yeah. come and go. They have about a two-, three-year window, and then we, we never see them again. I kind of wonder whether it's, you know, we go back to that old, whether – the equipment makes them look good and elevates them. And, you know, it goes back to the Weisskopf thing of, you know, these slappers and the Rembrandts. And the, the equipment makes a lot of people look better than they probably are. And these guys were, you know, Nicholas Gill talks about the one iron into 15 that last day. Is that tiny McGregor, you know, Muirfield one iron from 240 yards or something. And he pipes the thing 12 feet from the hole with. I mean, give me Graham McDowell now back at 240 at Augusta with a, you know, tiny McGregor one iron. So he, just try flying that to 12 feet and tell me how much better you are. Was he still playing the dodgy McGregor ball at that time too, Gil? Was it a combination of the line and the ball? He, 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 he was McGregor, which, you know, the people have said that the technicals have been playing titles. He would have won 25 majors <laughs> instead mm. of 18. That, yeah. that was uh, how much, uh, how little people thought of that, of that golf ball, which if they played McGregor clubs, they were required to play that, that tourney ball. But, you know, you make a... Uh, you, know, you guys make a good point about you know that the equipment and and the fact I you know look I, I don't think the players today are, are any better than they were ten years ago or, or fifteen years ago when Tiger was was dominating you know I personally I do think and I don't know if you guys agree with this that 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 the equipment and and the courses and the the grooming of the courses I, I think they level the playing field a lot and I think they they oh, yeah. in turn make 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 fields seem like they deeper than maybe they they should be and that's one of the reasons you know going back and, and you read this book and why these guys were were so talented and were able to separate themselves were the were was their talent to be able to hit to hit the clubs they were playing with at that time and the balls and and the fact that the other thing i, I want to get you you know you guys are, are are architects and get your thoughts on this was when you go back and watch 75 the masters and, and you see that, that action on sun, Saturday and Sunday. The one thing that, that struck me so much was how the balls ran out. And obviously, yeah. it's a different course at that time, but how tee shots ran out, and how when balls hit those greens, those Bermuda greens of that overseas on, on, in that firm you know, comeback soil at that time, seeing the, seeing a ball hit a green, you know, at Augusta National and bounce six feet in the air on the first hop. I mean. That that blew my mind, <laughs> you know, and that's you know one of the reasons why at that time why these guys were the favorites because these guys these these more than anybody else in that field the three guys were able to to, to hit their iron shots the highest and get balls to stop the uh, the, the quickest. It definitely was the course played differently because of both the golf course and the equipment, but that it allowed 
you know, the cream to rise to the top more. This is an extraordinary turn of events that we've ended up talking about equipment on State of the I know. Game. And <laughs> I know. It so rarely happens. It does so rarely. Uh, but it's good that we diversify things. That's, that's right. But, Clayton, I do want to get your thoughts on that. Is there a case we made that, in fact, uh, and, you know, the, the pros today are McDowell saying, I mean, the truly offensive thing about what McDowell said, is, as you say, is exactly that the players are better today, and that goes unnoticed and criticises <laughs> Tiger and everybody wants to talk about that, which is all kind of a bit backwards. But are we actually watching a different game? Players in your caddying for Suo, they are playing a different game, aren't they? And they need to approach it differently to the game of the equipment of 1975. It is, in fact, just a different game. It's not a knock on the players necessarily to say better or worse or different or whatever, but they are playing a different game. So they, they play it a different... It really is about hit it as far as you can, uh, you know, and the courses and all that being different. But they are playing a different game, aren't they? Yeah, the drivers are so much easier to hit, so it's just standing way away. And, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, I don't know that the irons are... Are they really that much better now than I mean? I played in nine seventy five. There were some beautiful lines around. Mm. There were some, you know, they were terrific clubs, mind you. But down here, Wilson were always a great name, and I see in the book that um, Miller's manager convinced him to change from McGregor because already Weisskopf and Miller were, and, and Nicholas were there, and it was no good being one of three of the, the three best players at all playing with the same stuff. So he said, "I changed to those crappy Wilson clubs." <laughs> 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 Which was, yeah, I mean, players keep, they still keep making the same mistake. They, you know, I mean, McElroy, having spent all year denying last year that it, it wasn't affecting his golf, admitted at the end of the year that it took him nine months to find a driver he liked. And, mm. you know, I mean, players, 40 years later, they're still making the same mistakes. They're still changing clubs for money. and Which, of course, was Weisskopf's big thing when, David Graham won the US Open. Weisskopf called him up and said, don't ever change your clubs. You've got the perfect set now. Don't ever change them. But, of course, they always do. Mm. Yeah. What they usually do, but, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a point. In 75, you've got the three guys playing, you know, what we're with today, you know, in, 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 in terms would be relics. You know, I mean, I mean they, Johnny was playing with, uh, you know, with, with drivers from, from the 40s. Jack had a, uh, you know, a, a sand wedge from the 30s. Uh, Weisskopf still had his same set of irons uh, that he was that he was given when he when he turned pro. I mean, uh, what, guys today out there, what's long as they keep clubs in their oh. bag? Oh. Do they? I mean, it, it, <laughs> I mean yeah. a couple a, a, year. a year would a year be too oh. much? I mean, oh, these guys much. have got clubs in their bag that they haven't changed for uh, you know for, for a very long time, and uh, and so it, it, it's quite different. And you're right in this day and age. When did when did Norman finally dispense with that three wood clates? It would have been late nineties, early two thousand. He carried it for twenty something years, hadn't he? I seem to recall him still using it. The ninety nine Australian Open at Royal Sydney. I saw him hit it on sixteen. It was a um, personal yeah, three wood. Yeah, I mean, was, I mean, Nicholas had the same three wood his whole career. I think. Yeah. And, and you, you go back to that story. I saw Squirrel, who was carried for Jeff Ogilvie for so long. We were. 2007, we're at Riviera. And he said, you know those clubs he won the US Open with last year? He said, they're all gone. Every one of them's gone. Wow. Eight months later. God, How long? Well, wedges are on a sort of six-month rotation with most of the tour pros, aren't they? They claim they wear uh, the even, out. And yeah, some guys are even less. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, well, that's yeah, much and less. It's, you know, it's, it's companies wanting to sell their latest club. So yeah. they've got a latest club every three months. So everyone's got to change the new blue driver or the black driver, the white one or the pink one. Or the- and, of course, the difference, Clates, is when, when you found a Persimmon driver that you liked, 
for whatever reason, you did, you stuck with it for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Now they're exactly the same. They just churn out exactly the same drive and they, they churn out a million of them and so you, you just hit that. Back to the the McDowell comments and, and you sort of touched on it, Shaq, you know, this sort of fear of saying something and all that sort of thing. I remember Clates talking to, to Jeff the year after he won the US Open and did an interview for one of the local golf papers down here with him. And sort of said to him, you know, what have you noticed? What's been the biggest difference about being the US Open champion? He said, well, suddenly, apparently, I'm some sort of oracle. Anything I say about golf is suddenly right and important because I won the US Open. I'm saying the same things I said in 2005, but now suddenly they seem to matter. And he said, I can understand why guys like VJ and Tiger and Phil and Ernie are very careful about what they say because there is a certain segment of the press looking to make trouble for you with everything you say. And I found that really interesting that he, it, it, was, it was because he'd won a major, suddenly everything he said was amped up. Um, and maybe yeah. that's a part of the problem is that, you know, we treat these people differently. And McDowell, if Shane Lowry said what McDowell said, I don't think anybody would care. But McDowell won a US Open and has won a couple of times on the tour. Suddenly everything he says is much more important and, and you know, people will read it if you put it in the paper. Well, and he's an, a pretty thoughtful guy. So you generally assume he's, he's kind of thought through what he's going to say. And he comes out with that. And I, I've heard him ask that question before, but that was a much more mm. blunt answer and why it got attention. And I guess that, that there is some element to that. I don't really sense in the media center, though, that there are a lot of people sitting around going, ooh, I hope we can get him to say this today. Oh, no, uh, no, no. I, don't, I agree with it's that. A pretty, it's a pretty uh, – uh, I'm not sure what the word is. It's <laughs> Didn't it's a Jack, fairly benign group. Yeah, didn't Jack just last year have the same? You might remember this, Gil, at the Masters. He said something at the Masters about he hadn't sat down and, you know, talked at length with Tiger oh, yeah. about yeah, something. Yeah. Now, this went round the world, Gil, as Jack, colon, I don't talk to Tiger or Tiger won't talk to me. Uh-huh. How, can you, how can you be a player in that world? You must just you'd shake your head, wouldn't you? I mean, that's just – it's crazy stuff. You can understand why they're careful when you see that sort of thing, can't you? Yeah, well, well, and Rod, you'd ask for example, so I have to turn to page 66 and 67 of my book to give you, let's go back to 75 and I'll give you two examples here of things that may not be said at this time in the game of golf. So here's here's a quote from Johnny in early 75. Jack has been on top so long, uh, people are beginning to look for someone to beat him. (laughs) Now people are starting to say, maybe right now Johnny Miller is better. Right now, I might be. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. seem too bad to me, but if you think about if something like that is said in this day and age with 24-hour, seven-day-a-week mm. coverage the golf talent has to have, all yeah. the websites, Twitter, everything, I mean, that comment would be uh, deconstructed, you know, 100 mm. times over in the, in the hour after it was uttered. Mm. Here's another, which is actually coming from Jack. So imagine if Tiger says something like this in this day and age. Here's Jack um, actually at Augusta the week of that event. I think Gary and Lee are better golfers than Johnny. As far as I'm concerned, winning the major tournaments are the real test. Gary's won eight, Lee five, and Johnny only one. Um, you know, they are better golfers than Johnny because they've won major championships. Now, you know, that's and that's Jack's opinion. That seems kind of benign, but you know, imagine, you know, Tiger saying that, you know, about anybody you pick out in the field. I mean, that would just that would cause yeah. a huge firestorm. Well, imagine Tiger. Now you imagine could also it. look at it. 
another way that this is an evolution of society that we now recognize that when somebody talks about themselves in the in the third person that that's kind of a sign that they're pretty high on themselves <laughs> it could be that element to it too I'm just trying to imagine. Uh, I mean, Johnny, Target. does Johnny still mention talk about himself in the third person much, or is that is he kind of past that? I can't remember the last time Johnny. <laughs> you can't ask Gil to. You don't answer. You that. can't ask yeah. Gil to tell stories in school. No, 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 I tried. Gil, 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 Gil Katz does not remember the last time Johnny did that. <laughs> uh, beautifully, wise, wise answer. Beautifully done. The magnificent just, masters on sell everywhere. By the way, the yes, books are yes, sold. Yes, yes. Yeah, indeed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I got to ask a couple little questions about doing the book. Um, what was everybody pretty cooperative and eager to to talk about this event? I mean, I see you. Yeah, you go as far as people like Vince Scully. You have some interesting people you track down to talk to. Everybody was, you know. I the only, the only person that, that I wanted to talk to that I that, that wouldn't talk to me was Lee Elder. Oh, um, so. But but Jack was was great, uh, you know. Even you know, let's be honest. You know, Jack's getting older. Jack's memory is not quite as good as it as it once was uh, on on some details. Um, you know, Tom was was Tom was just terrific. I mean, Tom was the guy where you you know when I went to see him out in Scotchdale and you think you're done, you turn off the tape recorder and then you just start talking about something else over lunch and you turn it back on. I think I turned on and off the the voice recorder about eight times on that day. Um, you know, and, and the other guys, I mean, you, the other thing you forget back in that day and age, you know, and in this day and age, golly, we, we make a star out of everybody, and it's, you know, a guy has four or five wins, and, and we're just oogling and ogling over him. And, and you go back and remember guys, you know, like Jerry Hurd, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, what a great talent Jerry was, and guys like Bobby Nichols, and these guys were, I can't tell you how much fun I had just going and talking to these guys. and. And, and have them tell stories, most of which you never even made the book, and reminiscing about playing at Augusta and, and these guys and golf at that at that time. It was it was amazing, you know. And I wish actually, you know, I, you know, with with kind of having two other jobs uh, to handle, I, I had a few more on my list I would have liked to have, have gotten to. And obviously, you could spend, uh, you know, like, like the fellow that wrote the, the Todd Williams book that came out last year. I guess I probably could have spent ten years and written a. 700-page book. But, you wrote a second uh, book, The Rotting of the Book. With, with my publisher, uh, uh, so you have to stop at some point deadlines. But, but but to go back and talk to these these other fellows and then to add in guys like, uh, you know, Ben Wright and Ben Scully, um, you know, and what a treat. Uh, you know, one of the guys I know, Jeff, who's uh, not all of yours, Ben was just, you had to pinch yourself. You talk to him on the phone, you had to, to pinch myself, and I was constantly, yeah. you know, almost getting ready to ask, you know, okay. I know this isn't Ben. Who's doing their Ben impersonation? Is right. <laughs> is this Dan Hicks? Is this, you know, Rick yeah. Lerner, Jimmy Rogers, whoever? I mean, everybody has one. You know, it was uh, it was a great to talk talk to Ben. And that's another thing. That's you know, here's the guy, you know, Ben Scully, who who's called countless you know sporting events and World Series and 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 football and tennis and and you name it. And and he's sitting there, and he can literally recall to this day, not with not with ha- ever seeing you know the, the tape again, everything that happened that Sunday afternoon in 1975 wow. at Augusta, you know, which was his first Masters. And he, uh, you know, he says, "I'm getting chills talking to you about you know these wow. these shots and remembering the feeling that that I have." And then he says, "You know what? I'll be honest with you, 
you know, the other, I think he did, did seven, maybe seven more Masters after that before he left CBS to go to NBC. Said the other seven, I don't even know I could tell you who won them. Wow. wow. For 75, oh. I, I can remember almost, almost everything that happened uh, wow. happened that day. Three. Isn't that wild? And we, I mean, we all kind of know that now, uh, the lines that were said and memories of the 86 Masters because there have been highlights and replays and all the iconic calls. But, uh, I mean, that speaks to how powerful that event was because they didn't have those replays. I mean, what, the Jim Nance replay was... Was that the first time anybody had seen that? Uh, and you guys didn't get it in Australia, but we had a Jim Nance Remembers, I believe, on the 75. Did we not, Gil? And We did. Um, and that was the first time anybody had seen it since 75, right? That is correct. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And even that, you know, because, because there, there, there's commercials and their interviews yeah. looped into it, there were certain important parts, uh, you know, of that day that got... They got left out. It, it definitely wasn't in in its entirety. But, but you make the point, Jeff. You know about '86. And look, that was. I, I'm not here to say what was the best Masters or what was the best golf tournament. And '86 was, you know, fen- a phenomenal day and an emotional day. And everybody's pulling for Nicholas to do it one more time. But you know, the, the, the fact is, at the time, you know, looking back. The 75 Masters was probably the more important Masters to Jack. Would we be thinking, it was, Jack's got a great legacy anyway, but had he not won 86, would we think of him in any different different terms than, than we do now? No. Probably not. But had he not won 75, had, let's say, somehow Weisskopf won, and Weisskopf somehow gets this huge bolt of confidence and decides to to really dedicate himself. And Weisskopf wins maybe a major or two more. Maybe Johnny wins. And Johnny was, you know, Johnny's interest was waning in the game at the time, too. But Johnny meant, you know what? If I'm a U.S. Open and a Masters champion, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I think maybe that tournament took something out of me. I think maybe I could have, if I won, rededicated myself and, and maybe gone on to win more majors and then, and not made a mistake of, of leaving McGregor, et cetera. You know, and what, what happens to Jack? I, you know, Jack never seems Jack. Whenever Jack got beat, as long as Jack didn't beat himself, mm. somebody else played better golf and beat Jack. You know, it, it didn't seem to affect Jack. So maybe it wouldn't have affected Jack. But you know what? Maybe Jack kind of gives up a little bit on the rest of the year. Maybe he doesn't win win the PGA. You you you, you can you never know. But but from that standpoint, to Jack yeah. reassert himself and get that major championship. You know, at the time, Masters number five, and to really put, you know, let's face it, he dented, you know, he he, he knew, he knew that Johnny and Tom were the two most talented guys out there mm-hmm. when they were playing well. And even if Jack was playing well, those are the two guys who had the goods to to, to take him down. Mm-hmm. And so to, to kind of really dent those two guys' psyches at that at that moment was a, was a really big deal. It's a it's a very uh, A type personality thing to do, isn't it? To sort of <laughs> to, to to sort of there's only room for one rooster in the hen house, and that that rooster is me, Jack. Just to uh, correct, and, and you made and somebody made a comment. I, I, this little video we're talking a little bit about ego, and hey, Jack. I mean, let let's say I mean greatest sportsman ever, greatest loser ever. You know, I mean, all that stuff it, 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 it rings true. It is absolutely true. But you know what, Jack had. A huge, mm. huge ego. Yep. 
You have to have that to be, to be the greatest, you know? And Jack had it, still has it. One of the things that kind of rubs somebody like Tom the wrong way is Jack's ego, and sometimes when he, when he pops up the feathers, but Jack did. He had that ego. Exactly right, Rod. Yeah, it reminds me of something you once said to me, Clay, we were talking about Peter Thompson. Somebody said, oh, P- Peter's arrogant. And you said, well, Peter's like the French. You got, if you've got the best food, the best wine, and the best language, why wouldn't you be arrogant? <laughs> you know, you, you can. Just to pick you up and correct you on something there, Gil, not everybody was cheering for Jack at the 86 Masters. There was a couple of us down here in Australia that were hoping Craig might. Right, that's right. That, 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 is, that is right. Not, not even actually all of us, but there were a few of us down here in Australia. Yeah, there are a few Spaniards cheering as well, yeah. and I guess, you know. Yeah, that's right. Tom, I guess Tom Kite's, Kite's mom and dad were cheering for him. <laughs> so... <laughs> He had his moment in the sun. Cheering for the Spaniards too, don't I? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Not everyone in Australia was cheering for uh, for Greg necessarily. Look, and we've hardly talked about, it. of course, the, the, we touched on it at the start, Gil. But what was the importance? I read a Dan Jenkins review yesterday, the, his Sports Illustrated piece on the seventy five Masters, and he talked mostly about the golf. But then in the middle, there was a sizable chunk of the piece, de- you know, ded- devoted to the to the to the issue of Lee Elder. Playing, how big a deal was it at the time? And I haven't had a chance to read your whole book. I've read the first couple of chapters, and there's some things I wanted to ask you about. But um, how big a deal was it in '75, Lee playing? It was a huge deal, and it was a huge deal for the 51 weeks before that that event. I mean, poor Lee, you kind of felt sorry for him. I mean, here he is after you know it's, and obviously not having an African American golfer in the Masters had been such created such a firestorm for the club and the tournament and for golf for, for so long. Um, you know, in between Charlie Sifford never being, having been invited, um, you know, one year he had a group of congressmen write a letter to Augusta National asking for him to invite an African-American. And, and through all this time, Cliff, Clifford Roberts, um, you know, chairman of the club, stuck to his guns and said, you know what, when when, when there is a, uh, when one, when, when Atkinson qualifies for this event, you know, under our qualification criteria, he will be, um, you know, invited. And um, you know, I, the, the one thing that was interesting, I and of course I wasn't privy to, uh, um, you know, to, to what those guys were thinking back in the early '70s, what Clifford Roberts was thinking. But, but I did find it, it fascinating when that change was made to include winners of all PGA Tour events, which was right there. Uh, after the 71, 71 Masters, because that seemed to be an indication to me that that you know what we're ready for mm. for this to be over, and we're ready for somebody to qualify. We're not gonna gonna invite somebody and seem like we're kowtowing or have a token participant, but we want to make it to where you know if somebody like like a Lee Elder or like a Jim Dent or like a Charlie Sifford wins a PGA Tour event. That they will get into the Masters, and so Lee Elder finally does it. But it's the week after the Masters in '74, so bless his heart, he has to wait 51 weeks. And that is, you know, you, you can imagine at the time, and it, you know, the attention that that got, and particularly outside the golf world, um, you know, all the major news weeklies and newspapers and and networks are constantly uh, calling and asking for stuff and. Uh, and he's being pulled many different ways uh, from, from 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 friends and family and, and endorsements, and and he has to endure this all this time till he gets to the Masters, and he was 
I, I think basically he was a, a basket case when he when he finally got there. But but that you know that that settled a lot of uh, uh, for, for the time uh, a lot of issues with uh, with the race, and that kind of got put to the side burner and golf for for a little bit. Obviously, uh, you know, unfortunately, our sport uh, golf does not have the uh, the greatest record when it comes to. Uh, it comes to, to gender issues and racial issues and religious issues with with some of the the private clubs uh, where our sports play. But 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 that was a huge deal for Lee Elver to to finally play play in the Masters. And and, I mean, and, and why didn't he want to talk to you for the book? You think? Uh, I you know I, I have my my thoughts, but I'll I'll just I'll, I'll just leave it that he declined to to be interviewed mm-hmm. for for the book. He's an interesting character in that way, isn't he? I mean, uh, Jenkins made the point he refused to speak to the press on Tuesday. It was uh, on the Monday. It was all wait until the press conference on Tuesday, which Jenkins described as you know the most dull thirty minutes of the week, whatever. You get the sense that Lee was perhaps trying to play it. He didn't like to be the central character in this particular story. That was the feeling I got. No, he didn't. He he never thought of himself as a martyr, and never uh, never thought that he was there for anybody but himself and uh, and his wife. Um, you know, very much unlike unlike other uh, other African American black athletes, uh, such as an Arthur Ashe, who actually won Wimbledon just a few months a few months later. Mm. Let's uh, let's move on. It's, 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 it, the book is fantastic. The seventy five masters was amazing, but we must we haven't got forever to talk, and we want to talk about a bunch yeah, and, of other stuff. Yeah, and one other thing about the book, just what's really neat is if you want to give it to somebody, uh, what Guild does beautifully at the start of the book is you get these little biographical sketches of the three main mm. characters. So you, so if somebody wants to know sort of the biography, the life of these people, they get a nice nutshell yeah. version, um, which is yeah. which is and really great detail stuff you you probably haven't read before. Sorry, just before we move on, the one last thing, Jeff, that I did want to ask Gil about. Gil, tell me about the Masters Parade. I'd never oh, heard yeah, of this. The parade's phenomenal. Yeah. The Miss Golf Pageant. <laughs> Why have we lost this? What has happened in Augusta? I, I, I mean, wouldn't that be great to have a parade? I think you answered on, it, Rod. Oh, you know, a Miss Golf pageant. This, I, I, that's a, you know, we talk about how golf has changed and how, you know, it used to be such a, a social event. And, you know, and, and at that time, you know, the Masters and, and, and Clifford Roberts, they were always thinking of ways to... Uh, to drum up publicity and drum up uh, support. You know, people forget I was, you know, last week was the, the 80th anniversary of the first Masters, which got a, a lot of mentions. But what, one of the things I, I neglected, I was going to tweet it out, but I didn't, was in fact people forget that, that, that after the second round, they, 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 they went and had a driving contest and an iron contest. You know, so imagine here in two weeks if after we get done play on, on Friday. Friday and everybody, okay, we're going to go, you know, over to uh, between one and between 18 and nine, and we're going to have our driving and iron contest. Oh, the first thank- up, uh, Tiger Woods. <laughs> he could be in the drive, <laughs> pitch, and putt. And, 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 they, and they had that, obviously, until the part three, and they, you know, but, I mean, they couldn't, you know, they were giving away tickets there for a while. And wow. so to have a... Uh, to have a parade and have a beauty pageant and they had boxing contests and all this, you know, was really in its heyday there in the in the 40s and 50s, um, you know, until, um, you know, let's face it, until Arnold Palmer came along and Arnold ruined it. 
all ruined it because he came along <laughs> and this telegenic guy and winning these masters and it's on TV and the tournament's going more popular and, and people want tickets more and then they sell out the tickets and then they don't want, you know, then they don't need, what is Augusta National Day? We don't need, why do we don't need this parade anymore or any of these, these extracurricular activities that will, they'll, they'll just, we'll, we'll drop them and not, uh, not need, we don't need the city support anymore. So Arnold ruined it. What a shame. Look, you mentioned the, the driving contests, which I think were quite common at tournaments in the 60s and 70s. Clates, do you remember any of that here in Australia? And what have we? Wouldn't that be fantastic to have a driving and an iron contest after Friday? I think that would be magnificent at Augusta every year. Well, the Vic Open had a long driving contest. They had heats every, after the play every, in fact, when they started when Johnny Miller won and played here in 1977. They had, um, no, in fact, no, it was a couple of years before that, but they had, Heats after every day's play in the final after the tournament on Sunday. So with with the players from the field, you mean? So with the Sorry. players with the players from the field. So Johnny Miller made it to the final, and after he won the tournament on Sunday, had to turn up to the final of the long no, drive. No, no, I mean Miller didn't go in it, but I mean Bob Shearer did. He he won at Kingston Heath the year before. Yeah, it was, it was a long driving contest. It was great fun. I was going to say that sounds like great fun. Why don't we do that these days? People talk about what are we going to do to get people back to golf. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> There's a, there's Can you a... imagine the griping that would go on? Oh, my, I'll, it'll throw off my swing. I'm in the middle of a tournament. They would moan to no end. Oh, that's extraordinary. The idea is just has grabbed me. I love the idea of the parade, oh, the parade. too, and the miss yeah, golf pageant. Be... That is just... If you see pictures, I mean, it is well attended. It is a big deal. And, the, and there's a, a, a pageant. Yeah. I mean, it, it was... There's your next a, book. A big deal. And, uh, you know, and it can imagine, too, I mean, that's the funny thing is you look, go back and look at some of the pictures in some of the other books of, uh, about Augusta National and the Masters. You know, in the 30s, and the carts being parked there, you know, there, there's somebody going around the, the parking lot and putting these, these bumper stickers on the bumper stickers, on the back of the bumpers of these cars that says, you know, I've just attended the Masters. <laughs> you know, can you imagine them going through and doing that? That's the I mean, that's oh. you know, we 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 think of that old timey kind of kitschy uh, stuff, but that's that's what was done back in back in that day and age. And this, you know, let's 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 not uh, let's not kid ourselves. This wasn't as I tell them say in the book. This when they originally started, there's no indication that that their goal was to make this tournament mm. the greatest tournament in the world. You know, it, it was that to celebrate the club, Bobby Jones, and hopefully maybe sell some, some extra memberships and publicity for a club that was opening in the middle of the Great Depression. But, you know, but let's not kid ourselves to these. Everything that, that was done then from the beginning was done with a purpose. Yeah. You know, the, a lot of smart men, uh, savvy men, and through, uh, through promotion and through publicity and marketing and in the early days and sticking to their guns, Putting money back into the tournament and the golf course, uh, and making it, you know, making the tournament feel so special to players and fans and and media, um, you know, they they knew what they were doing. It's not a mistake that that the Masters, you know, is the Masters. Eighty years later, is, is the tournament yeah. it is. It's probably a lesson in that, isn't it? All these people who start, oh, we're going to have this tournament. It's going to be the greatest tournament in the world. The first year, well, that's not how you actually build a great tournament, is it? You, <laughs> it needs to be built, not. Uh, not just uh, invented. Let's talk about this year's Masters where we're going to have none of the fun stuff. I'm, I'm already bored with this year's Masters now because yeah. there is no parade and there is no driving an iron contest. 
on Friday afternoon, but it is still going to go ahead despite the fact that it'll be a huge disappointment. Now, Gil, you follow golf most weeks of the year. You're on the road, head of the Golf Channel Editorial Research Unit. I'm sure that these things are uppermost in your mind as you watch things unfold during the year. We, of course, get to say this year for the first time ever, an Australian is going to defend the green jacket at the risk of being self-indulgent. Can we start there? Adam Scott, of course, uh, putted his way out of the Arnold Palmer event a week or two ago. What are our chances with Adam Scott coming up and a couple of your thoughts about this year's Masters, Gil? Well, let me first say, I don't know how you can uh, uh, how you can say the Masters week you know, off the course won't be great because, you know, I'll have a book signing at Barnes & Noble on, on Tuesday Ooh. the 8th at 7 o'clock. And that, have... that is going to be the, the highlight, I'm yeah. sure, uh, of yeah. Masters week for all those, all those involved, and I may even have to... Uh, I may have to, to, to rent, rent a float and drive to Barnes & Noble to get some Yeah, <laughs> You and John Daly perhaps um, could hook up and do something together. You know, I, I've, I've already had that suggestion. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, this is, I can't think of a Masters, and we've had a lot of, uh, of recent great, you know, really excited about the Masters, but I, you guys weigh in. I can't think of one that there's more uncertainty going into to a Masters than there is this year, and guys... Yeah. You know, at the top of the world rankings, there's so many questions. I mean, usually we at least have a couple of guys. You're like, you know what? He's, God, he's going to do this and he's going to do that. I like him, but I mean, yeah. they're question marks. Be, uh, you know, beside everybody's name, and especially and obviously, yeah, Adams played really well. I mean, really well, and uh, and Roy's played well too here uh, recently. But I think the first question mark comes up for those two guys are how. How do they bounce back from from pretty much just playing Santa Claus and giving away tournaments that were that were theirs for the for the taking? You usually don't see guys of their ilk do that. So, what's their state of mind, and how does that you know affect them going going into the year's first major? Yeah, and how about I mean, how about Bubba, who looked like he was going to be the guy going in, uh, just playing incredibly well, and then he throws this 83 WD at Bay Hill. And uh, and then of course Tiger and Phil are just uh, Tiger might awful not be right there. Now. I mean at least Tiger's shown some signs. You know he's had these blow up rounds, but at least he's thrown in some 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 good scores. So you could at least say, well, if he gets healthy, mm, if he plays, um, there is some form of a game there. Uh, Phil um, is trying to bring it back a little right now, but he's he's uh, he's been awful. And and uh, you know I I'm a, as you guys know I'm a big believer in the West Coast swing. And then leading into Florida and kind of building up to the Masters, and I, I, I wonder if this, if kind of the year-round thing has uh, has caught up to some of these guys, and they they are just not going to be. I mean, it feels to me like it's going to be a really goofy Masters. That is certainly no favorite. You, you can't no. look anyone as a favorite for the first no. time in. I can't remember the the last time where there wasn't a favorite for the tournament, and and you look at all those guys and tell he can't win, he can't win, he can't win. Who can win? Yeah, what a shame we didn't get an invite this year, Clates. We might have been. Yeah, we might, win, yeah. Well, well, he's got to get it. He's got to get in the field, but he might get him do in. It. Yeah. Mm. yeah well, video, what, what, one of the interesting quotes from '75 was in a, in a Reichling game from Lee uh, Trevino, I believe, who said, "You know what? The Masters really is the easiest major to win." Mm-hmm. And I think, of course, I think that frustrated Lee because for him it was the hardest. But in retrospect, you know, with the limited field, mm. um, you have a lot of guys there. You know, have no chance. Um, and an experience plays such an important part for, for the for the top echelon guys. You know, it, I think he's right. It is the easiest major for them to win. Um, and, and the fact too that you know, going back to the book as well, 
you know, it's interesting, you know, Jack, you know, that's all Jack cared about was, was Augusta. And especially by 75, you know, the only thing Jack cared about was winning the Grand Slam in the calendar year. That's all that, that was, that's all he cared about. And, you know, to the point, I think, you know, and he actually came in 75, he came the closest stroke-wise any player has ever come to winning the Grand Slam. You know, wins Masters, two out of a playoff of the U.S. Open, one out of a playoff of the British Open, wins the PGA. But, you know, the, the fact is he built his schedule around preparing for that first event in Augusta. And Jeff makes the point, how many guys now in this day and age make their schedule, you know, and I'm not talking just, like, thinking about a week or two before, am I going to play San Antonio or Houston? I'm talking about thinking back the previous September and thinking, you know, this is what I'm going to do in my preparation for Augusta. There, there, there are very few of them. And one of them I think of is Adam. I think Adam yeah. Scott. I don't think Adam Scott's made, you know, in the last two or three years. That was a goal of his. Tiger, a, a little bit, maybe. Phil, maybe a little bit. Phil plays so much. I'm not, you know, West Coast, I'm not sure. But none of these guys. You know, none of these guys do. That's one thing that I asked Jack. I said, Jack, you know, did did it really surprise you back at that time that nobody, you know, you're the greatest ever at that time. And, you know, it seemed to me that if I was a golfer, I'd say, you know what, whatever Jack does, I'm going to do. I'm going to copy everything yeah. that guy does. And Jack said, you know what, that was a blessing. Nobody copied my schedule. Mm. Nobody copied me going to Augusta early and doing the things he said. I, I don't know why, but nobody Nobody did it exactly like I did it. No, it's funny you say that because I just did a story for Golf World that will be in next week's issue about people going to Augusta early and how it, I went down to the senior event and a lot, you talked to them and they all went, yeah, well, Jack did it. And I said, well, when could you go there and play the course beforehand? Ah, you know, and the answers just totally varied. Some said you couldn't at all. Some said you could go the Friday before. You could, it kind of opened up. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, Jack, would go early, and Jack's reason was actually not to scout the course. It was to kind of get the nervousness out of the way, was how he put it. And uh, now they all go there. And uh, But I don't even know, in talking to guys, I still don't know, after after talking to many players, why they go. It's a total mix. What's the deal? Well, some of them just go because Tiger goes, and yeah. some of them go for a real reason. If you're in the field, you can yeah. you can turn up any time during the year, can't you? Is that the deal? You can, the and, and yeah. you can also use yeah. the range there. Right. And... Uh, hmm which the members can't. So there's some nice things. Mm. But, but, you know, the other reason Jack did it, which, which was, was brilliant, is the fact that he goes up there and it's almost like he's playing the tournament a week early. Mm. You know, it's almost like so he is playing an event leading into the Masters. Goes up, he usually liked to play four rounds. He liked to, to see the golf course, see how was playing. Like, and he liked, they say, he liked to shoot a score. And he liked to, you know, for the most part, he said, if he shot, you know, if he shot 275, for four days, he felt like that probably would be right around the winning score the next week. But it allowed Jack to get away from the circus, too. And we know it was the same in 75 as it is now. People get there. I mean, how many other tournaments do guys go to the tournament on Sunday night or Monday morning? Zero. You know, so, yeah. so, so right away, guys are thrown off their normal schedule. And their bodies tell them it's not a normal week. Everything's out of whack. They're renting a house, got family, kids, tickets. They're playing, you know, twice as many, if not three times as many practice rounds as they do during a normal week, you know. And everybody's flustered. Here's Jack. 
He's he's leaving as they're coming. <laughs> Jack comes back Tuesday, mm. plays nine in the afternoon, goes to the dinner, plays nine the next morning, doesn't play in the part three, you know, and ready yeah. to go Thursday morning, just like a normal week, just like you would normal week, go in Tuesday, play a pro am, and, and, and be ready for the tournament. He's the only guy that did that. I mean, he had, mm. he had that whole thing figured out, and you see that even in this day and age. I mean, all these guys that go down there so early. And, and and are there all week, and it's a big commotion. That's and that's another reason why it's it's the easiest major to win, because you've got you know not only have you got probably a, a third of the field that, that has no chance anyway, no matter what they did, but then you got the other third of the field that basically takes himself out, you know, by 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 the wacky schedule and the wackiness that they invite into their lives. You know, because it's the Masters. Well, it's it's the easiest yeah. major to win if it wasn't the Masters, isn't that? <laughs> that's how the the pressure thing works. Clades, what's what's your take on where the Masters stands amongst the majors? It's a it's so different to the others, isn't it? Well, why and and the history of the club? There are so many unpleasant things about the history of this tournament and the club and the people behind it as well. Yet it holds this amazing place amongst the majors. And as a player, I suppose you probably got a a different take on it, perhaps, to, to just the viewing public outside. Where do you put the Masters in the majors? Well, everyone loves it, but Peter Thompson said it's the greatest marketing exercise in history. I mean, they've done an incredible job marketing that tournament. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, it has to be the third major. The, the US Open and the British Open are way more Well, not way more important, but they're certainly more important. But there's this mystique about this tournament that, that, that's been brilliantly marketed and sold to the world as... You know, the legacy of Jones and Mackenzie's course, which is kind of half there still. And, but it's just been brilliantly sold. Mm. By well, hey, come on now. It's also fun to watch. It's uh, more fun but, to watch than the other ones. Well. On yeah, a consistent that, basis. Well, that, that is true. It, it, it's always the best golf of the year. I mean, you, you always come away from the Masters feeling like someone's played great golf. Mm. Whereas you always come away from the US Open feeling like it's been terrible. Somebody survived. <laughs> yeah. But in the end, the national championships have to be more important than Augusta, but it's a better tournament to watch, no doubt. Mm. Gil, of course, your mob television have been responsible for much of that, haven't you? You've pointed out already the struggles that the Masters had for the first couple of decades and all the marketing they had to do. Television really has made the Masters. It's so visually spectacular. It just gets better of you with high definition and 3D and all this stuff. Television, yeah. in some ways, yeah. has been the making of the Masters, hasn't it? You know, it, it, it does. And, and Mike's absolutely right. I mean, if you, if you really think about it, I mean, all this is is an invitation from a private club, mm. you know, in this small southern city, Polts. You know, I mean, U.S. Open, British Open... PGA, and let's throw in the players. I mean, I, you know, the players, you know, in a sense, probably has more weight and more importance to it than the Masters as well. But, you know, in the eyes of of almost every general sports fan, even non-sports fans, you know, the Masters is the the best tournament in in, in golf. And as we've talked about a lot of the reasons why why that is the case, and a lot of it, um, you know, to go back to the book again, but I think, you know, the modern masters, you know, I think a lot of the lore and a lot of the things we think about, about, you know, Saturday is moving day and that tournament doesn't begin to the back nine on, on Sunday, um, you know, under, under great sunny Georgia blue skies and the pines and guys hitting great shots and great champions, 
you know that the standard was set in '75. Hmm. You know there was there there wasn't before '75. There was not a Masters ever like that on television. '75 was the first really great finish shown in such a way. You know under the under the, the direction of Turkinian, and and that I think is the uh, was the gold standard and where the Masters really really took off from from that point. Yeah, and of course, familiarity for fans too, isn't it? We yeah, see the course yeah. every year, and for the players. I mean, the players grow up watching it before they get there. How many players will say they get asked, you know, "Have you ever been to Augusta?" No, I'm not going to Augusta National till I've earned my way there. The first time I see the course is mm-hmm. when I get invited to play the tournament. It really has this aura, and of course, you know it. You know, they know the shots, they know the putts. Scott talked last year, didn't he? Clates about, you know, oh, that's the O'Meara putt, the one that he made yeah. on 18. Everyone recognises all of those shots and it's just to watch it unfold again each year. One of the interesting things about 75, I was thinking about it when Jeff was talking right at the very start, Gil, the pin position on 16 on Sunday. It wasn't a tradition yet (laughs) for it to be down in the front left corner. It was up there on the back on top of the... I've never seen that in my viewing time of the Masters. So these traditions sort of, they start somewhere, don't they? But it's not necessarily right from the beginning. No, no, it wasn't. The pin wasn't... I think they're looking at some films previous to that, too. It wasn't uh, in the same spot all the time, either. And the year before that, it was on a spot that was down low but further left. Um, and that was actually where it was in the third round. And Weisskopf made this this downhill 12-footer on, on Saturday. Um, you know, they, they changed around a little bit. But that, you know, that Sunday location they, they've had now for a, uh, for a little while is it, quite exciting on on 16, that's for certain. Yeah. And particularly for uh, where it comes. Yes, Shaq. Now, one of the things that's going to be interesting, uh, while we've been talking, uh, uh, a story came up on Twitter from Cameron Morfitt of uh, golf.com. He interviewed Justin Rose, who's been talking to people who've been to Augusta, and they're they're saying that the place just uh, is shocking how uh, much damage there was to the trees. So it's not just Ike's tree, but <clears throat> apparently some of the... Uh, the vistas now through the course are, uh, are like you've never seen before because the ice storm just kind of uh, made some of these trees naked, and uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, how television deals with that this year, and and also just uh, the 17th hole without that tree. Can I hear you smiling there, Clates, at the yeah. thought of tre- trees disappearing from Augusta <laughs> National? We're seeing it. I hope they'll all die down the right of the 11th hole. They yeah. all gone. Uh, now, that's the sad part. Is it's, I'm, I'm afraid it sounds like the uh, all the crappy ones they planted were too young and too short to be damaged. All the beautiful, majestic trees that are, that are probably off to the sides are the ones that were damaged. Yeah. So naturally... Uh, the golf guards didn't quite come through the way we'd hoped. Could you see visually, I imagine you must have watched a lot of the 75 Masters in doing the book, could you see visually the changes in the course, what we see now compared to... Oh, I, I, absolutely. I was going to say, you guys down in Australia don't know. Uh, here in the, the U.S., their, uh, weather ch- the Weather Channel here has taken to naming these these winter <laughs> storms now, just like we do hurricanes. So my, my, I don't remember if the one that came, the winter storm that came through Augusta, was named Mike Davis or not? Yeah. But, uh, obviously that. You know, all these trees. I, I always, you know, thought it was kind of funny that, uh, and I don't know that I, you guys have an opinion either way on this, but you know, Augusta National. One of the ways they thought they needed they needed to protect the golf course was to add trees and add trees and add trees. And this goes back. This isn't just something that happened ten years ago. This goes back, you know, decades. It goes back to. The 75 when 
they planted about 18 trees to the left of, just in front and left of the bunkers, where guys were, were hitting it up there and it run right in front of the bunker and then they could have an open shot over the bunker to the, to the, to the green. And, and Roberts put in uh, a dozen and a half pines in there that year. And now obviously there, you, you know where that, that corner is now and those are, are, are fully grown, you know, whereas we've seen so many other courses, right? At Tampa Oakmont, where they've gone in and, and taken everything out, um, you know, to the point to taking it back to, to playing and, and how it looked originally where Augusta National, you, it looked, you look at the pictures from, it looks different from 75 as it looks different from, from 33 when the course was, you know, Bobby Jones wanted it to have to look and to whatever extent they could, the feel of a, you know, of a Lynx type mm-hmm. golf course or however close you can get, you know, being, being in, in Eastern Georgia. So, uh, um, it, it's been a, a great change and, you know, they, and, and the folks at Augusta National don't tell you everything, but I sat on, on 14 for quite a few years and, and we'd be there a few years and I, I got smart and started taking a, a picture each year and then you'd see, you know, maybe the next year with that little sapling right down there, see it wasn't, it wasn't there last year and you'd see a few things here and there, there changed. I don't know you guys' feelings on protecting, how they protected that golf course by planting these, these trees in all, in all these spots. Oh, oh we, we think it's all horrific, of <laughs> <It's>, course. And <laughs> but Clay, so, Gil touches on something interesting, doesn't he? I mean, the, the changes to Augusta, and obviously, you know, the last 15, 20 years, they've been very obvious and there's been some... So, but Clifford Roberts did some amazing things to the crazy yeah. stuff, building mounds and, yeah, the eighth green. Didn't he make it just a complete circle or something? Oh, some, it's wretched. Yeah, yeah like yeah, a some, flying saucer. Yeah, some truly awful things. He's <laughs> horrible. And he got rid of... I mean, it's a, it would have been nice to see McKenzie's hole, the 16th hole across the creek. I mean, I know yeah. Saracen hated it and they got rid of that, but I'll bet it was a better hole than the one that's there now. Mm. Yeah. And all of this is probably what helps to make the money. If you're really into golf and you're a golf nerd, there's so much to this tournament, isn't there? Because you've got the course and the club and the history and the characters, you, you could you could be a Masters, you could research your whole life and never find out yeah. everything about the Masters, couldn't you, Shaq? And Augusta National, it's... Uh, it's just uh, such an extraordinary thing. Look, we've gone way over our normal time, yeah. which is already way too much for most people. But, Kill, as I always say, we could talk to you for hours. This has been absolutely fantastic. I'd love to have you come back on from time to time because, of course, you pretty much follow the tour, don't you, with your television duties and whatnot. So if anybody's plugged into the game, you'd be one of those people. It'd be great if you could come back from time to time if you got the time. Hey, I, I would love to, yeah. I'm on the road quite a bit and at all the major championships, and uh, uh, I'd love to. You've just yeah, booked yourself you a spot. Thank you very much for... Uh, for having me, and I'll uh, you know I'll add they were, they were kind enough on GolfChannel.com. If anybody wants to read an excerpt for the book, they can uh, they can go there, and also uh, the website Kelcaps.com, which is uh, which is is all uh, shameless self promotion. It, it's no <laughs> that's all right. Uh, no, no no news or, or validity to it, like uh, uh, but, like Jeff's website. But like Johnny Miller, you've walked the walk, Gil. You do, you you can you can hold your head up and do some self promotion because the book is fantastic and. Uh, the bits I've read are fantastic. I can't wait to read the rest of it. I know Clates has read it and he enjoyed it. But we thank you for taking the time. You've booked yourself as our major correspondent, I think, with that statement that you're at all the majors. So we'll hopefully talk to you again during the year. Thanks for taking some time today and uh, and enjoy the Masters this year. I'm, I'm sure you'll be there. Will do. Thank you, Rod. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. Not at all. All right. Thanks, Gil. And thank you, Jeff Shackleford. As always, been great to have you on board today. Thank you. Yes. No, it's great to have Gil on. And the, the book is definitely 
quite quite uh, worth everybody's time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Clates, great to have you on board. Good luck at the Craft Nabisco next week, Caddying yeah. for Suo. We'll watch her results with, uh, with keen interest. Yeah, and that uh, that wraps it up for State of the Game this week. Thanks for tuning in. Do hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back again. We. Oh. We might do a Masters one next week. We'll have a think about that. We will uh, yeah. might do something next week. Otherwise, we'll be back in a couple of weeks after the Masters to talk all things golf. Looking forward to your company then on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.